2: available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much.
0: And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free.
2: Membership starts at just two dollars a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening.
1: Castration foam! thats so important!
0: I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark Edition. And we're back from hiatus
2: as well. What an episode to come back with. A seasonal scary story one.
0: Did we take a break? Is that a thing that happened?
2: (laughs) We tend to take about a four to six week break in between seasons to, you know, center ourselves, get over the crippling depression that was finishing the story of Spartacus.
0: She misses Spartacus. She's still like... Still not over it. Me too. I feel that. I'm just saying maybe you were on hiatus, Jen. I did not feel like I had a hiatus.
2: Well, I mean, we didn't because we actually never stopped recording. But the the nice thing about the hiatus is it gives us a, a little bit of time to catch our breath. No, it doesn't. To... Prep for the next season. Okay, it doesn't. I'm lying. These are all lies. Okay, I'm just going to tell you guys what I'm most happy about. It is October. We're in pumpkin season. It's spooky season. It's spooky season. We're dropping this right before Halloween, and we are going to tell you some of our favorite ancient world scary stories to tell in the dark. And we've got a special guest, and that is the one, the only, Liv Albert from Myths Baby.
0: Welcome! (laughs) Hi! Hi! I mean, who else are we going to ask on here to tell us a very scary story from ancient mythology?
1: You guys say ask as if I didn't hear that you were doing a spooky stories episode and say, can I come on it? (laughs) She sort of insisted. I
0: mean, that did happen. (laughs) This was kind
1: of on me. I just sort of said, I'm going to be on this
0: episode. Let's chat. Better just plan for that, ladies. So we did. (laughs) So if you
2: grew up in sort of the 90s, you'll have an idea of what scary stories to tell in the dark is. They were kind of a great anthology of like creepy ghost stories.
0: Do you remember the covers, like all the art in them? They were so creepy.
2: They were so creepy. If we've gotten our shit together, you may even have some special artwork for this episode, but...
0: I cannot guarantee that we will have had our shit together by then. We can't guarantee that we will, but you might. (laughs) We'll try. There might be some really awesome merch that is reminiscent of scary stories to tell in the dark from the 90s, which we all need in our lives right now. But I don't know if we'll have it together.
1: I was a bit more of a Goosebumps gal myself. Oh, I love Goosebumps. I loved Goosebumps too, or an Are You Afraid of the Dark? That was the Canadian one. Thank you, Ryan Gosling. Very young. That's a thing.
0: Yes, the R.L. Stein stuff. Yes, I loved all of this. Any kind of scary story as a kid, I was all about it. The scarier, the better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, if everybody mm-hmm. died at the end, that was better. I was a very morbid child. <laughs>
1: <laughs> one of my all-time favorite movies forever has been Scream and Scream Two and Scream Three and Ugh, just Scream.
2: No, Scream 3 is terrible.
1: No, Scream 3 is terrible, but it's still so enjoyable because of how terrible it is.
2: I think the new Scream reboot is, like, much better.
1: Honestly, to be perfectly frank with you, I will watch all of the Scream movies forever. They are making another one. I will watch it on day one.
0: Like my first scary story ever as a kid and that still terrifies me is Poltergeist. Did you guys ever see Poltergeist? Oh, it's
1: so good. Yes. Okay. I saw it like very recently though, for the first time, like I didn't watch it because I mean, it came out in the 80s. So I was like arguably not born when it came out. I think I was not born.
0: I was definitely born. I don't want to date myself, but I was born. I think it came out in like, what, 86 maybe?
2: I was born, but I was too little to watch Poltergeist in the 80s.
0: You know, there were so many good, like really scary to me at the time, horror movies, like Gremlins. Did you guys see Gremlins?
2: Gremlins. Oh, absolutely.
0: Leprechaun. (laughs) Leprechaun.
2: I've never seen Leprechaun.
1: (laughs) Oh my God, dude. Leprechaun has also a young Jennifer Aniston in addition to it being like an insane movie in general.
0: This is bringing back memories.
1: (laughs) The horror movies of the 80s and 90s were something else. They should be cherished forever.
0: They're precious, you guys. Treasure them. Absolutely. So um, the idea of this episode is to bring that back a little bit, all the way back, a lot farther back than the 80s. Maybe the 80s BC.
1: (laughs) Ooh, I'm going further back than the 80s BC, Jen. Who do you think you're talking about? What a flex. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the 780s BC.
0: Ooh. That's a complete (laughs) guess on my end. I'm swooning over here. You know I swoon for old things.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So... Our new season, as I'm sure you've seen on our social, we have gone to Roman Britain. So both Jenny and I are going to be telling you stories that come from Celtic mythology. They may be a little bit different than what you're expecting for Halloween.
0: But not that much different.
2: Not that. I mean, is there going to be blood? Is there going to be gore? Will there be severed body bits? I mean, yes.
0: <laughs> Obviously.
2: What podcast are you listening to? <laughs>
0: So, the idea of this episode is to tell you all some scary stories from the ancient world to chill your bones and see which one's the scariest by the end.
2: We're all gonna tell you our tale. And at the end, we'll give you maybe a little bit of historical context, if there is some. And then you can vote on social and let us know which one you thought was the
1: scariest. Ooh, we're doing voting. I love it.
0: Okay, so let's go into it. It's a beautiful day for a battle. You lead your army thousands strong, spirits bent on action, round the coast of Turlow and through the woods road, along clear, straight horse paths running by rivers thick with salmon. You cast your eye back at your troops, all tall, proud, strapping Normans in gleaming armor, made strong in England's crucible, now here in force to manfully subdue the rebellious Irish. You, Declare, are the flower of the Normans tall and blond and ruddy, well versed in the dance of broadswords. The only ones taller are the contingent of gales, men descended from the first inhabitants of Ireland. They stride the paths with golden heads held high, huge in spirit and body as if ready to grapple any Tuath de Danann who might leap out from behind a grave mound. Their leader rides up to you on his gleaming gray horse, brow furrowed. He has news. The cops up ahead, is thick and dark, and the River Fergus is swollen with rainwater, a prime setting for an ambush. He advises you to pull back, find a more opportune place to cross. Nonsense, you say. Your army is comprised of the heroes of Normandy. You will fear no Irishman hiding in the bushes, and you certainly won't turn back for a river. You reach the banks of the River Fergus just as night is falling. The gales were not wrong. The river is swollen with rain. Its surface flashes with the glittering skin of salmon. Even so, your army prepares to cross the boiling eddies and the swollen volume of the surging black water. And as they mill on the banks, you and your captains catch a glimpse of a shape out on a small dark hillock in the middle of the gurgling torrent. A terrible bedlam... That's the only way you know to describe her. A distorted, monstrous form, lone and ancient, stooping over the bright, spouting river, skin rough as old leather, eyes crinkled elf tracks, hair long and racked with hideous tangles, her cheeks foully ulcerated, her nose curved like a fishhook and her eyes dripping bleary tears. So astonishingly ugly is her appearance that at first you don't notice what she's doing, but then you do, and your mouth hangs slack in horror. All about her stand massive bloody piles, disassembled arms and legs, bones sticking out and broken, heaps of intestines and gleaming innards, a cairn of decapitated heads, gaping and bleeding, higher than her own. You watch her kneel by the river and wash her spoils, and you notice the bright water is not so bright after all. In fact, as far as you can see, its surface is dulled by a scrim of hair and grease and gory brains. You glance to left and right, examine the faces of your officers. Do they see this? Their wide eyes and gaping mouths assure you that you're not the only one. You're not going mad. A hush of horror has fallen over your army. Then everyone looks to you. You are the flower of Normandy, the leader of this army. You must say something. Old woman, you declare, and she looks up, peering at you malignantly from crimson-lined lids. What name have you? Who are your people? The woman opens her mouth, but you do not understand her speech. Suddenly the leader of the gale stands at your elbow, glowing with some internal sun brought forth from the dawn of Ireland. I recognize this one, he whispers in your ear. You must be very careful, General. Only one of our heritage can understand her speech. Then translate, you command in your forthright way, and the gale does. The dismal of Burren am I the woman says, through the translation of the tall, ruddy gale. "'Tis of the Tuatidana I trace my lineage. I come to meet you on your way to a fateful battle, to deliver a warning. It is the only one you'll get. You hear your army murmuring at your back. They are restive with fear. You must infuse them with courage, though your legs are shaking and your heart is struck with terror. We need no warning, you declare, and we hold no fear. But whose kin are these poor, mistreated dead lying on this barren shore?" The withered crone does something with her face that might have been a smile, were it not so hideous. "'Don't you recognize these corpses, Great Declare?' she asks you. "'You stand among them even now. You ride to your death this minute.' And then, without another word, she holds up by its matted golden hair a severed head, mouth agape, eyes staring, blood running thick down the shreds of skin and tendon trailing from the stump of its neck. You know that face. You'd know it anywhere.' It is your own. Ooh, I've got goosebumps, Jenny. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: I love that.
0: You want to guess who that is? Um, is it a banshee? It's totally a banshee, Jen. How did you know? Maybe because I've talked about it a lot. I mean, I was expecting more wailing. I know, I I always expect the scream. Well, you'd think that, but actually, so this account that I just read you, I wrote it, but it's cobbled together from some of the most ancient mentions of the Banshee that there are in Irish folklore, and that's how they describe her as the washer at the ford, which is a depiction of the Banshee that actually dovetails a lot with other women who serve as warnings of somebody's death as they're riding into battle. Like, for example, the Morrigan, like, they're actually kind of tied together. And I thought this was the scariest and kind of an unusual way of depicting her. So I wanted to use that one instead of the, you know, expected one. Yeah, it's more of a misdirect. That's right. It's a little bit of a fake out. I love it. So I want to dig into the history of the Banshee a little bit. Yeah. And also the story becomes even
2: scarier, I suspect, when you know the historical context.
0: Yeah. So the Banshee is a female ghost or spirit in Irish folklore whose presence foretells your doom and if you know anything about the banshee you think of the blood freezing whale she has this unimaginable grief that echoes across the countryside and is very scary
2: this is such an old terrible movie but i will always think of it darby ogill and the little people
0: has anyone else seen that oh my god me too right they have the scariest banshee in that movie i can't believe you also have seen that movie With a last
2: name like McMenemy, why are you surprised that I've seen that movie?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen this movie, Liv? It's like, it's actually terrifying at the end. No, I've never heard of that. So anyway, the word banshee comes from an old Irish word that means woman of the fairy mound. Since its earliest history, this spirit was associated with Neolithic grave mounds. The oldest mention of the banshee is tied to a historical event, which was the struggle between the Irish O'Brien family and the Declares, who were a powerful English family originally from Normandy. And they were warring for control over a region of Ireland, which was very fiercely independent. And it had held out for more than a century after the original conquest of Ireland, Ireland by Anglo Normans. So, the book that the Banshee appears in for the first time that I found is called The Triumphs of Turlough, and it's a historical account of the time written by a chronicler who probably lived during or very close to the time of these wars, but it also contains a lot of fantastical details. And In The Triumphs of Turlough, the Banshee appears in several different forms, sometimes young and beautiful. And when she's young and beautiful, she always gives you good news and sometimes absolutely terrifying. And when she's terrifying, she gives you really bad news. And it's the terrifying ones that I thought were the most interesting and colorful. And they show many of the qualities that the Banshee does become known for right from the beginning. So I'm going to tell you guys how to spot a Banshee.
2: Oh, please.
0: So she predicts death, your own or possibly a family member's. She is said to live in a she, which is the Irish word for an ancient Neolithic grave mound. She has long, streaming hair and often wears a green dress and a gray cloak, and her eyes are red from weeping. She may be unusually tall or unusually short. Jenny, this sounds like it might be me. So Jen is a banshee. (laughs)
2: The unusually short?
0: (laughs) Sometimes the banshee might appear in the form of a young, beautiful girl who recently died in your family. So it would be like personalized to people who died in your family. Sometimes she appears as an old woman in a shroud or veil, and she's hunched beneath the tree and lamenting. And sometimes, this is the version that I incorporated into my story, you meet her washing your own bloodstained clothes at a river ford, which means you're going to die soon. In some areas, she's called the little washerwoman or the washer at the Ford, and of course, this is the main thing with the Banshee, is the shrieking. The Banshee is said to emit this ghastly shrieking sound, which is more grievous and mournful than any other sound on Earth, sharp enough to shatter glass. I always heard it was like a keening, like a deep grief wail. No, you're right. It's a wail of grief, so painful and profound that it'll rip the soul right out of your body, Jen. What? Oh boy. <laughs> One interesting thing about the shrieking is that in some parts of um, ancient Ireland and Scotland, professional mourners were sometimes hired to weep, shriek, and keen at funerals, and the best ones were very sought after. So this is something that might be based in history. Yeah, I feel like that, that comes from somewhere else too, right? Oh yeah, this is not the only place where this happens. Okay, good. I was
1: like, that sounds so familiar.
0: Did they also not do this in ancient Greece? I feel like they did. Like, I don't
1: know about hiring professional mourners. Oh
2: yeah, absolutely. In Roman Greece, they did.
1: They did, right? Because, well, mourning was such a huge thing. Like, they tore at everything. When a woman was mourning, it was like very important and very expressive of how important the person was who had died.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So... I'm going to tell you about how you can see a banshee, because not just anyone can see a banshee, at least not in the oldest mythology. So in some legends, only those of pure Milesian descent can see and hear a banshee. So this is getting kind of into the weeds of Irish history and like, you know, pseudo mythological history. But the thumbnail version of this is that the Milesians are a mythical race of Gaelic people who traveled to Ireland from maybe Iberia or modern day Spain after traveling the earth for centuries.
2: I'm just going to say this. If you get get the chance to have the Iberian secret pork and you're in Spain, do it.
1: Get the secret pork. Secret pork. Pork sounds questionable. It's pork and it's secret. <laughs>
0: so the story of the Milesians is told in the Book of Invasions or the Book of the Taking of Ireland, which is an Irish Christian mythological pseudo-history of Ireland from the beginning of time to the medieval era, fragments of which date from the 7th and 8th centuries AD. The sense that I get is that medieval monks wrote this history as sort of an answer to the Iliad. Like they wanted an Irish Iliad.
1: Based on the name, is I'm just curious, is it something about like... Like the invasion of Ireland and like colonizing Ireland? Is it more of like an English account of taking Ireland than it is like Irish original or it is, it is Irish?
0: It's Irish and um, it's basically a book of like six different waves of invasion and colonization by different people. A lot of them are mythological people like the Tuatha de Danann, which I'm probably not pronouncing correctly. You sound very confident. Yeah. So there's all these sort of mythical battles and people figure very strongly who the Christian monks wrote down as sort of like magical heroes, but actually they were probably pre-Christian gods. Ooh. yeah. So it's a really interesting document. And I used it as a big source for a lot of episodes that I've written for this season. Anyway, so in this book, a people called the Milesians conquered the supernatural Tuatha de Danann, who were the prior inhabitants of Ireland, who were kind of like the fairy folk, and they were like magical race of supernatural people. And it's from them, the Milesians, that, according to this book, the true native Irish people are descended. So Milesians and Irish myth are also sometimes referred to as Gales, a Celtic people who originated the first Gaelic language. And their original ancestor was, in the mythology, a Scythian prince. His mother was an Egyptian princess. The Milesians had, like, Egyptian and Scythian and Iberian backgrounds. And then they went to Crete. And then they finally made it to Ireland. So they came from all over the place.
1: Cool. I mean, it sounds Io-esque to me. Did she travel all the way up there? Yeah. I see Crete, I see Egypt, I'm I'm feeling Io. I'm feeling like cow Io, maybe once she was no longer a cow anymore, headed on up to Ireland, did some cool shit. This is
0: fascinating. I love it. You know, cows figure strongly in Irish mythology. Just seeing another connection.
1: Well, have I discovered everything? Cows figure <laughs> super
2: prominently and we see that reflected in their mythology especially like we did an episode a couple seasons back called the hound of ulster which has to do with the cattle raid of Cooley, where essentially like a war breaks out over a really attractive cow
1: i mean cows are great Io's a really hot cow
0: yes it was a male cow in this case wait
2: there are no male cows it would have had to be a bull
0: oh right so it was a it was a bull Mm, okay mixing it up so anyway Only true descendants of the Milesians, the Gaels, can see the banshee. In Irish folklore, most people who see a banshee have a surname with an O or a mick or a Mac prefix. Oh, fuck. (laughs) So Jen would be the one among us who can see a banshee. Those specific prefixes are goidelic, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but they come from Irish, Scottish, Gaelic, or Manx languages, rather than being Norman, Norse, or English, that kind of thing. So in the triumphs of Turlough... There's one scene where a declared general encounters a banshee but can't communicate with her, and he has to ask some gales in his army to translate, and that is something that I worked into that scene. So some families were said to have their own specific personal banshee. For example, the O'Briens in the Triumphs of Turlough had one called Efall. I think I'm pronouncing that right, who had a host of 25 other banshees, so she had an entourage. Oh my god, that's amazing!
1: Like, an entourage of Banshees is the coolest thing I've ever heard.
0: (laughs) Right, so if your last name happens to be O'Brien, then that's what you're going to get when you die. Get excited. Right,
1: like, sorry, that's what I want for my life.
0: I'm excited for you. So, the Banshee is the most Irish of the Irish legends, right? Well... There's some interesting connections outside of Ireland, actually. I did find mentions that there were also Banshees that appeared in Norman mythology from around the same time as they did in the Triumphs of Turlough, which is the oldest mention of the Banshee that I found. And I couldn't find any of those directly, and my French is not good enough to be able to research things in French, so I'm probably missing out on a lot, but I did find references to Les Dames Blanches, which means the white ladies, a similar female spirit in French folklore who also warns of impending doom and utters a heart-stopping wail, and they're also said to hang out near streams, ravines, and bridges, so they're also associated with flowing water.
2: You know why that is, I suspect? I think it goes back to Greek and Egyptian mythology because the waters were liminal, right? It's the barrier between the living and the dead. The river Styx and the waters in the underworld. Is it Ra who traveled on the Egyptian barge through the underworld?
0: And also that's very Iron Age liminal space where people were throwing sacrifices into bogs and things like that. There's definitely something there about water being this sort of connection between the mortal and the immortal realms.
2: Yeah, it's a gateway.
0: Yeah. So I found this intriguing connection here between French and Irish banshees or banshee-like spirits that suggests that there may have been a common ancestor, maybe one that dates all the way back to a time when Celtic culture stretched all the way from Ireland in the west to what's modern day Turkey in the east, a time that reaches back 2,000 years to the time of the pre-Roman Gauls, because I'm always looking for signs of the pre-Roman Gauls. It might be a sickness.
1: I mean, but there's little things you can connect to Greek mythology too, right? Like there's just so much connection to all of it. Like, I mean, sirens for one, but then also just like nymphs in general. Like there are a couple of stories of nymphs, like straight up kidnapping dudes and they're not super common, but there's a couple instances of them and I feel like they come more from Other cultures where characters like this were actually malevolent because most nymphs weren't. So then there's a few where you're like, well, this kind of seems off, but I feel like it more comes from another culture where their mythology had these women who hung out near streams and ravines and bridges who would like actually be dark in
0: that way.
2: Yeah. Who could pull you down into the depths.
0: Mm -hmm, Exactly. Like um, Heracles' boyfriend. Is there anything Banshee-like in Greek mythology, Liv?
1: sirens yeah well sirens the voice of the banshee is very similar to sirens in the way that they're like they're singing their call would lead you to your death like you heard them and you died no question But then also the connection to nymphs is interesting. So I feel like they're kind of this like combo of malevolent nymphs and sirens.
0: I feel like there's something with the sirens that is seductive in a way that a banshee is not presented to be seductive. That's
1: true, yeah. It's more like the like lead you to your death part. So I think they're like, they're an interesting combination of things where it's not exact, but you can tell that these people interacted with each other, you know, in whatever way they did. But there was some sort of tenuous interaction.
0: I think that's really true, and that's really fascinating. And I would just
2: remind people that all of the stories we get from ancient Ireland come from monks who were writing this down much later, who were definitely influenced by Greek and Roman mythology. That doesn't mean there isn't an overlap. It's just important when you're looking into it that you know that somebody may have made that connection and put that in there already.
0: Well, the thing about the um, Book of Invasions, for sure, and this possibly at play with the triumphs of Turlough as well, is that they wanted to create like a historical document that was like their answer to the Iliad. So they wanted to give their culture this sort of long epic history like the Greeks had with the Iliad, So they would have been trying to draw that connection.
2: Liv, where did we see this and it didn't work so well? Could it be the Aeneid?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, but I will say also that that connection between Druidic and Celtic culture and the Greeks, we talk about it more in an episode that we're going to drop after this one about the Druids and what they believe. But there were ancient writers, ancient Roman writers for sure, talking about what the Druids believed. And these were outsiders and sometimes conquerors, so you have to take it with a grain of salt. But they were talking about what the Druids believed and drawing connections between those beliefs and um, Greek thinkers like Pythagoras, even during the time when the Druids lived. So there's definitely a connection there that's pre-Christian. I will call upon
2: you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VTW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18+.
1: Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and
2: their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps... You're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout
0: history. If so, join me, Katie Charlewood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Area of Media Network, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir,
2: zen, my friends. Bye-bye.
0: I'll be seeing you. So who else has a scary story to tell us?
1: I don't know, it might be me. Are you ready?
0: Can you please terrify me, Liv? I will. They're known as the Kindly
1: Ones, the humanities, but it isn't because they're benevolent goddesses. They're called the Kindly Ones as a kind of bribe, a way to appease them, to keep whoever is speaking of these women from being punished by them. The humanities are not kind. The humanities are a threat, a warning to those who might consider taking out their anger, their frustration against a family member. Orestes and Electra knew there would be punishment from the gods for what they planned to do, but they didn't care. Their mother, Clytemnestra, and her new lover had done the unthinkable. They had been the ones to break the natural laws of the earth first. Their mother had killed their beloved father, Agamemnon. Orestes knew why his mother had done what she did, but it didn't excuse it. Yes, he missed his sister, Iphigenia, though he'd barely known her. But it was Agamemnon's right as the king, as the father, to do what he did. Electra saw it differently. She could remember her sister, her beautiful sister, Iphigenia but she too wanted to see her mother dead. It was cowardly what Clytemnestra and Agisthus had done to the great king Agamemnon, the war hero returned home from a decade away, fighting for the Argives against the Achaeans' common enemy, the Trojans who dared to take the king of Sparta, Menelaus's precious property, his wife Helen. Even now, Orestes and Electra seethed with anger when they thought of what their mother did, luring their father into his home with the promise of a warm welcome, a hot bath after all his travels, all his years away in that dusty desert to the east. She'd laid out a red carpet. He was to be so warmly welcomed home. Their father's screams echoed through their minds, his shouts of pain and anguish, the sounds of spurting blood as their mother stabbed him over and over in the bath. No, it didn't matter what kind of punishment the gods doled out against Orestes and Electra, they must carry out vengeance against their mother. Clytemnestra and Aegisthus couldn't be allowed to get away with what they'd done. They did it, Orestes did at least, though he had the support of his sister. Orestes killed their mother, Clytemnestra. He did it for Agamemnon, their great father, famed throughout the Mediterranean. What a man their father was. The Arenawes came swiftly to him then. He should have assumed they would. The Humanities, he and Electra will call them, to keep them happy, to keep their wrath from becoming worse than it already was, The winged women swooped down upon him, the snakes wrapped around their bodies, writhing and hissing in anger that mirrors the women themselves. With a cry, Orestes raises his arms above his head, trying to protect himself from their claws, the teeth of their snakes. The screech of the Eumenides echoes throughout the palace courtyard. Electra tries to help, running to her brother, but the women shove her off. She's not their concern. She wasn't the one holding the knife. Orestes runs, arms still waving above his head, colliding with limbs and snakes and flapping wings. The screeches still sound throughout the courtyard, the town, the mountains, as Orestes tries to run from these women, only to have them follow him wherever he goes. Orestes wasn't the only person hounded by the Urenaues, the Furies, for his crimes against family members, just the most famous, the one whose stories carried through the ages. This curse on Orestes also wasn't for him alone. Orestes was of the house of Atreus, and oh, was there a curse on the house of Atreus. Orestes was simply the final member of the house to receive the Arenawe's curse, the one who got the most dramatic version of it. Atreus and Thyestes were two kings of Mycenae, two generations before Orestes. Atreus was his grandfather. The two fought over the throne. They fought and fought. It ended when Orestes fed a meal to Thyestes, a meal that happened to be Thyestes' own two sons, cooked and served to their father. For that, Orestes was cursed by the Arenoes. And later, another of Thyestes' sons, one born after the death of the other two, Aegisthus, punished Atreus by killing him. Another curse by the Arenoes. This was, of course, the same Aegisthus who later became Clytemnestra's lover and teamed up with her to kill Agamemnon. Another curse, before finally, finally, Clytemnestra's children, Orestes and Electra, teamed up to kill her. The final curse of the Arenaways. Oh, and the reason Clytemnestra killed Agamemnon to begin with? He'd killed their daughter, Iphigenia, for a little wind to bring the ships to Troy. Ooh. (laughs) <laughs> super creepy anyway mine's just a lot of violence yeah mine's just like a lot of a lot of death a lot of violence a lot of killing one's family members i mean i really think that the ancient greeks were obsessed with killing your family members oh they were and what i'm about to tell you about there anyways is proof of that exact thing
2: i mean considering the uncle Mies love i have to say i agree maybe maybe you should kill your family members <laughs> <clears throat>
0: Looking at you, Oedipus.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I'll get there. I'll get there. Don't worry. That's in this. So the Renaways is my favorite name for them. That's their Greek name, but they're better known as the Furies, which is sort of an anglicization of their Roman name. But they were three women who were born of patricide, hence where we'll get to. They were, I mean, women is maybe a stretch of the term because what they really were, it was crazy badass monster ladies hell bent on punishing those who have broken the most sacred human laws don't kill a family member the greeks just did not want you to do that at all they frown they frown on that they frowned upon it completely so the arenaways they tended to focus their vengeance very specifically on those who'd committed crimes against their parents their siblings their children but most importantly their parents those were the people really in charge And they focus their wrath because of the story of their birth.
2: But how did that work with exposing children? So let me get there it's
1: in this
2: uh oh sorry 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 sorry
1: no it worked in the same way it was like they tried to do it so it kind of counted um but the point is this all started because of how they were born which we have all talked about so recently but it probably won't come out all in relation so just know that this is a story we have told each other a few times now
0: (laughs) it just keeps coming up it just keeps coming up because it's the best story, <laughs> but essentially... You know what keeps coming up is castration.
2: No, no, castration foam.
0: <laughs> no, but that's, that's Aphrodite. This is castration blood, Jen.
1: Oh, sorry. God, there's
0: no <laughs> foam involved. It's a different <laughs> bodily fluid.
1: So in this case, the Arenaways were born, like Aphrodite and the Gigantes, from the Castration of Uranus by his son Cronos, but not of the foam. You see, not from the foam. No, not the foam. The blood itself. Okay, I'm I'm quiet now. I mean, the foam is important, Jen. Don't get me wrong. It's just that Aphrodite is specific to the foam, and nobody else. So, Cronos castrated his father Uranus, and he like threw the parts into the sea. And from the drops of blood that landed on the earth as the bits flew, the Uranaways were born. And oh, did they fit the bill of those birthed of the castration (laughs) blood? Not foam. I was about to say foam. Because, Jen, like you say, I'm very used to saying castration foam. No, but you're right is that I'm so used to saying that.
0: Not foam. Different thing.
1: Castration foam. That's so
0: important. It's just that we can't stop talking about the castration foam. (laughs) I know. I put it in your brain. It's so important.
1: (laughs) So... The Arethines were three women. Most of the like really bad monstrous monsters in ancient Greece and the mythology are women, and I think that says a lot about how they thought about women. But also, I love it. We're just gonna take it back, and I like it that way. These three women, their names were Electo Megara, I should say, Megira probably is the pronunciation, and Tisiphone. It's spelled differently, as far as I know. Then the Heracles, Megara, so I'm going to say M- Magera, um a Tisiphone, which is a great name. They had these big, impressive wings, and they were described as being surrounded by snakes in various ways. Their hair was snakes, so they were kind of Gorgon-like sometimes. Snakes were wrapped around their arms and their waists and everywhere on a body that snakes could wrap the runaways, they flew around the earth with these whips as weapons and they shrouded themselves in the same black flowing clothes that were worn by mourners. I mean, they were honestly terrifying and incredibly impressive. I just kind of want to meet them. I mean, not in like the they're the Furies kind of way, but just kind of like a hey, ladies, kind of what's up? Way they seemed really cool. Hey, ladies, let's
2: sit and split a bottle of rosé, and you can tell me things, and I just want to listen. I think they're red wine
1: kind of gals. Yeah, I know, but I can't do red wine. <laughs> They'll have red. You can have rosé. Yeah,
0: Jenna has very specific wine requirements. <laughs> Fair enough.
1: The super cool thing about them too is that they were older than the Olympians because they were born of Uranus, or sometimes it said they were born of Nyx, who's still older than the Olympians. So regardless. They were much more ancient, which means they didn't have to follow any of Zeus's rules, which is awesome, because fuck him. Fuck him. They were like above Zeus. They were better than him. They were
2: outside the timeline.
1: They were. They were just kind of beyond him. At the same time, they kind of chose to live below him because they lived in the darkest, most violent, deepest depths of Tartarus. They delighted in the horrors of the underworld and all its murky, depressing goodness. Wow.
0: (laughs) I'm now so much more interested in the Fury, the Irinaways, than I was before. Oh,
1: I'm so glad. I fucking love them. They're so cool. They're
0: older than Zeus. They're
1: older than Zeus. They're just much more ancient. A lot of the darkest, like, most violent stuff is a lot older, which is cool and also says a lot about the ancient Greeks and their timeline.
0: I think that's what interests me the most about it is, like, it just gets more and more violent the farther back you go.
1: Oh, yeah. Badass queens, honestly. They were just incredible. But what's interesting really about them is just kind of how important they were in the real world of ancient Greece, because the whole story I told, yes, of Orestes and and Electra and the Furies, it was important in the mythology, but it wasn't always how they appeared or wasn't even usually how they appeared because really they rarely appeared in person. The story of Orestes and the murder of his mother, Clytemnestra, is like the main example of the Furies in the flesh, but it's the main example because it's a play, and so it's meant to be more dramatic than your standard ghost story. The uh, tragedian Aeschylus wrote the only surviving trilogy of ancient Greek tragedies, the Oresteia. This is the third play in the trilogy. It's called The Eumenides, named for the Furies, but not their real name. It's their bribe name, the kindly ones. It's really creepy. Yeah, it's so cool. It's like they would refer to the Arenaways as the Humanities to keep them happy. To be like, oh, you're so nice. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, oh, you're
0: so harmless and lovely. I'm going to call you the Humanities so you don't get angry. Never. You never get angry. Not at me. Definitely. I just think you're so kind and nice. No, you're the prettiest ponies. It's fine exactly just beautiful and wonderful don't look at how i just stabbed my mom it's fine
1: no 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 you're so nice
0: right so in this play they
1: they literally hound orestes it's a huge part of the play but I, as far as i remember in the production of it they're invisible so only he can see them Which kind of heightened the drama, but also made it easier to perform because ancient Greek plays were really strict about how many people were on stage at one time. Like there were only ever three actors and the chorus on stage at one time. So you couldn't have like three women hounding Orestes unless they were the chorus, which now I'm questioning myself, but I don't believe that the Furies are the chorus in the Eumenides play. If they are, I'm fucked.
2: But it's so fascinating because you think about it and you're like, what do the Furies say about mental health and mental illness in the Greek world?
1: Exactly. And that's what gets so interesting past Orestes and Electra, because essentially in every other instance of the Arenaways, they're a concept. They're a curse. They're not real people that appear like they appear in the story of Orestes because of the play. But otherwise, they're a curse, whether it's like any kind of personification or not. But they're just like, oh, you're fucked because you did this thing versus these physical women coming to get you. So like Laius of Thebes, like you're talking about Jen, Laius of Thebes is cursed for trying to kill his son, Oedipus. He's cursed even though Oedipus doesn't die. Medea is cursed for killing her brother, Absurtus. And then she's later cursed by Jason for killing their children. Medea gets a double whammy of a renaway's curse. She is,
2: I mean, she did kind of deserve it, but also not really. I mean, Medea's a queen.
1: She doesn't give a fuck. She's...
0: She doesn't give a fuck and I respect that. Exactly. Absolutely. She said, fuck you, did what she had to do. Behold my garden of fucks and thou shalt see that it is barren.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Look
2: upon it, and thine shall see that it is barren.
0: Correct. Woman
1: (laughs) drove a dragon chariot away.
0: This lady drives dragons and does not give a fuck. Gave no fucks. Absolutely no fucks. What a fucking queen.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's these curses or like Tarius curses Procne and Philomela for feeding him his own son. Tarius is a fucking asshole, though, so we don't really feel anything for him.
2: I mean, I feel bad for his son. For sure. But
1: like, (laughs) you know what? The things Tarius did, like his son had to be had to be punished. And that's just kind of the way it works in Greek mythology. Sometimes like sometimes you are punished because your father did horrific things. Sometimes that is just the way. And granted, it's not ideal. Not ideal. Yeah, but it's just such as life, you know, but essentially the coolest thing about the Furies in general is like they're just they are real and they're not real. They're like this sort of conceptual curse where you know you're being cursed by the arenaways, but they're not going to come to you because you're not even worth their time. Like you're so shitty. You're not even like worth these ladies coming to you and scaring you with all their snake selves and wings. You just know that you're cursed because of the Arenaways. They're scary as hell because they're so sort of invisible and sort of in the background of terror versus coming to you and being in your face.
0: I almost feel like the things you can imagine in your mind are always more terrifying than the things you can see anyway. Well, exactly. Exactly. They're just like, they're beyond you. They're better than you. You're not even worth their time. You'll make the theories into something more scary in your head than what they are. So it's almost their secret weapon is not appearing in front of you. Exactly. It's intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Just to fuck with you. And
2: also to me, this could explain a lot of like sudden like mental health issues that might sort of happen to people like PTSD and things like that that you might see from people returning from battle back into society and integrating.
1: Psychopathy too. And like inexplicable murder that might have happened because of various psychopathies. And they would explain it by like, oh, well, the renaways are hounding them. You know, that's all there is to it. Like that's that's why their mental health declined. It's just fascinating the way they would try to understand and explain those things.
0: Yeah. And I guess if, you know, you are in an ancient Greek community and it's kind of a small community, probably the people most accessible to you, if you are going to have a violent mental break and kill somebody, it'll be your family because they're right there. Exactly, yeah. Not to say that people with mental health issues have violent tendencies necessarily, because we're not saying that. No, they
2: don't. I mean, most people with mental health issues tend to be the victims of violence as opposed to the other way around. But we're just saying, like, in the ancient world, how might they have explained something like that?
1: I'm sure it happened sometimes in the way that it happened here.
2: Right. So shall I tell you a scary story?
0: Please. Terrify me, Jen.
2: All right. The fires are dark. Your mother doused them this morning before the sun rose. Because to have your fires lit this morning would be an invitation to the dead things, the dark things that walk the earth, to visit your home. It would be a beacon calling them to your house. And you have had enough hardship this year. Enough hardship to last a decade. This year, the Samhain bonfires will burn hotter and taller and brighter than they have since before your mother was born. You heard her talking to the druid priestess, asking her what she should offer to the AOC, the fairy folk, the dark spirits. Your mother's voice caught in her throat. What must she give the AOC to keep you safe, to keep you from joining her husband in the world beyond? What will the AOC accept to stay away another year, another 20 years? The priestess's eyes were sad and kind. Three cows, two pigs, and a white cockerel. Almost more than you have. Almost all the cows that came down from the high summer pastures. But the cows came down from the pastures, even if your father didn't. And you must thank the gods for that. Your mother agrees quickly. And you and your brother are left to figure out how you will survive by giving up so much. Your mother has been preparing the dumb supper for a week. This feast for your ancestors, where she is hoping your father will return, that he will sit beside the newly lit fire and listen to the stories your mother has been shoring away all these weeks. You have attended many dumb suppers, but you have never seen any of the dead return. Your mother believes, if the supper is perfect, if she follows everything the druidess has told her, that your father will appear, that she will be able to see him one more time, To look into his dark blue eyes and tell him all the things she only hopes he knew before he died. That no matter how loudly they fought, she loved him as much as the oak loves the sky. Your mother plaits your hair, weaving it into a long shore rope. She smiles as she looks down at you, telling you how lovely you have grown. How pleased your father would be if he could see you. Your brother is tired and hungry. He has dark hollows under his eyes. He's returned from a day of mumming, going door to door and collecting sacrifices for the bonfire. He has changed so much this summer. He's taller than your father now, and he's ready for his own farm or for a war band. He isn't sure which he wants more. It's time, he says softly. Your mother opens all the windows, all the doors. She lets the cool dusk air into the house. She invites the spirits to walk amongst your corridors to bring you news of the other world. Your brother thinks she is foolish, that the dead are the dead and they will remain so, that sowing is just another reason to celebrate after the harvest, after the cows have returned to the nearer pastures for the winter. Your brother does not don an animal skin. He does not paint his face. He scoffs at you. He shakes his head as if you are a small child and not nearly a grown woman who should know better. You adjust your wolfskin cloak, the one your father made you when you were ten. It's too small now to provide any real warmth, but that's not why you wear it. You know that the fair folk will be looking for those who do not hide themselves. Those who dare to face the night when the barriers between the worlds are thin without protection. You want to remind your brother that in the next town over, two men didn't wear their skins, they didn't hide their faces, and they were found the day after Sawane torn apart by wolves. But you say nothing. Your mother leaves little bowls of honey and milk and grain along the windows. She puts salt and iron by the doors. She only wants to invite one kind of spirit into the house. But when you open your doors, you cannot be sure who will appear. You leave for the fort on the hill, the one that overlooks the town. All of the town streams out behind you, and you are soon engaged in smiling and laughing, telling jokes to the girls who you weave with on a Sunday. You can feel the festival air. It's as if everyone and everything is taking a deep breath and pausing for a moment as you welcome the dark half of the year. This year there will be two bonfires with an aisle between the flames for those who need purifications and guidance to walk through. The priestess calls to the gods. She begs for them to see your village through the winter. She asks that the dead who walk amongst us tonight are kind, that our fields will be blessed, that those of us who are grieving and suffering will find a light through the darkness to come. As she finishes her prayers, two men arrive with a wheel so large that it blots out the setting sun. The priestess sets the wheel alight. It is spun round and round, a dizzying dance of flame and brightness. When the wheel stops spinning, it falls into the center of what will be the first bonfire. Each bonfire is filled with the sacrifices to the gods, wickermen complete with animals waiting to be burned. The second wheel is set alight. The process is repeated until two roaring bonfires blaze on the mound, the sacred mound of kings, the mound that looks out across the barrows, where they will rise from when the night falls, the fair folk. The rest of the evening descends into revelry. There is dancing and singing, and the blacksmith's son keeps looking over at you. He's wearing the skin of a bear, one you know he caught and killed himself. Most of the village takes turns walking or running between the bonfires, silently asking the gods for purification for their crimes or for help in the year to come. When it's your turn to walk through the bonfire, you're surprised to find the blacksmith's son at your side. He takes your hand in his and you walk together. When it's time to leave for the dumb supper, your mother goes on ahead. She loops her arm through your brothers and scolds you not to dawdle. Oh, and be a dear and make sure you bring back a torch from the fire. Your mother hands you the family torch, the one your father used every year to bring a flame home from the communal bonfire on Sowain. You have no idea what you talk to the blacksmith's son about, but you know that you are both talking and laughing, your bodies are close together, and you lose track of time. You feel safe. You don't hear the sounds of the wolves of legend who leave their barrows at night to hunt the stray men you don't hear the wails of the lady in white or the snarls of her boar that travels the woods on sawing to harass and haunt stragglers all you hear are the sounds of other people as they head home eager to greet the ghosts of their beloved ancestors to invite them to stop and listen to the tales of the year when you get to your house the first thing you notice is the silence a horrible red light emanates from the doorway. The line of salt has been disturbed, and then you hear the crunching, the sound of teeth scraping against bone and gristle. You hear your mother crying, you can see her white gown shaking as she sobs. You look across the room, and you see your brother first. He is seated in a chair at the table. His face is a mess of bloody ribbons, his body a wet and weeping broken thing. Above him stands a creature from the fairy mounds, Dullahan. His head is in his hands, his lips are curled around your brother's innards. The Dullahan stops feasting for a moment. He places his head back on his shoulders, and then he turns to you. You drop the torch, the fire burns for a few more minutes, and then it gutters out. You have seen Dullahan, you have seen the dark creature from the mound, and you know what that means, you have seen your own death. The blacksmith's son pulls you back by the arm, there is nothing you can do for them, it is best you come with me. So you follow him, you follow him for what feels like hours, for what feels like the entire night, and when he stops needing, when he motions you to step through the barrow, you do not hesitate. You remove your wolf skin because you will have no more need for it in the world below.
0: Scary.
2: Mm. (laughs) So that was a little bit about Samhain, which we've had so many people ask us to talk about. And Samhain is super, super fascinating. People will call it Celtic Halloween or ancient Celtic Halloween. It's sort of true, but it's not really true. It was the start of the dark half of the year in the ancient Celtic calendar, and we don't know a lot about it because it wasn't written down. This is a problem we see frequently. But we can glean some things from mythology. But again, just a caveat, most of that mythology was written down by Christian sources who had their own lens and axes to grind. So Samhain was the time when the ancient Celts believed that the veil between the worlds was thin. It happened roughly between the autumnal equinox when the nights are equal, and that's about September 21st, and the winter solstice, when the days are shortest and the nights are longest, and that's about December 21st, give or take. So that's where you get the date of October 31st from. And Samhain was a fire festival, maybe the greatest of all four of the fire festivals in the Celtic calendar. And it was to celebrate the start of the dark half of the year when, of course, the nights were longest. And interestingly, it began at sundown on the 31st of October and lasted until sundown on the 1st of November. So it didn't start like in the morning as like a day feast. It was like a night feast. So throughout ancient times, the amount of feasting days have changed. Sometimes it was three days, but it always began at sundown and ended at sundown. And sometimes it could be up to a week, but it was always about honoring the dead and about honoring the dark days ahead.
0: It was a nighttime festival, right?
2: Absolutely, yeah. And we talked about nighttime festivals and sort of the importance of these giant fire wheels and stuff like that when we talked about Yule last year.
0: Yeah, this is really reminding me of Yule.
2: All of the research reminded me so much of Yule. There's even, allegedly, a fairy hunt, like the wild hunt that we saw in Yule that can come out and sort of attack you on Samhain and bring you down into the barrows.
0: That's really interesting because I feel like Yule was a really Germanic holiday. And um, what I'm seeing here, Samhain is more of a Celtic holiday, but there's so much bleed through. Like they even have the fire wheels. They just have it at a different time of year slightly.
2: Yeah, and the fire wheels are debated as to when they have them, if they have them, that kind of stuff. The same with the Wicker Man,
1: we don't 100% know. That's Nicolas Cage though, right? Pardon the... Making a bad Nicolas Cage joke. (laughs) (laughs)
2: i'm thinking of the christopher lee one which is
1: terrifying yeah i've heard of that one i want to see the christopher lee one
2: but yeah so i've i've added in some things because we don't know exactly what they did on sawane so here's the thing about sawane it was also the time of year when you could communicate with the dead you could ask them for advice you could invite them into your homes and tell them all the things that they'd miss it was like it was a great time to commune and talk But along with the dead that you welcomed into your house, fairies and other dark creatures walk the earth.
0: And they might come into your house. If you invited the dead that you wanted to come into your house, they might come with them. That's scary.
2: Yeah. I mean, I use two creatures here. I use the Dalahan, which is a headless sort of male banshee, but also could do terrible things to you. And the Puka. And the Puka was um, the person that you dedicated your harvest sacrifices to. But they were a shapeshifter, and they were tricksy, and they could trick you off your path.
0: I see. So the Puka was the blacksmith's son.
2: Mm-hmm. You could protect yourself on Samhain. There were certain things you could do. So here's one of the things you could do, which we saw in the story. You could wear an early, like, a proto costume, which usually consisted of animal skins. Sometimes you painted your face with ashes from either your own hearth bonfire or the sowing bonfire or mud. And that was supposed to, like confuse them they're supposed to be like oh that's actually a fox so you wouldn't get taken up into like one of the six different things that walk the earth during this time which was like the wild hunt fairy horde there were these women who came out of the barrows and turned into werewolves and ate all your sheep which I find fascinating there was a woman in white much like your banshee she was called Lady Gwen and she had a wild boar with red eyes and if you saw her it was supposed to like mean your death and I think her boar could like attack you and eat you. You had the Dalahan um, and you had Pucos. So you had a lot that was happening.
0: Wow. I really did appreciate the number of severed heads in this episode. We got up to two. <laughs> 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 that was awesome.
2: <laughs> and the other thing you could do is maybe just not invite bad things into your home, like the narrator's mother did. You could close up all your doors. You could leave your offerings outside for the Fae folk. And later on, you carve turnips Because remember, they didn't have pumpkins. Pumpkins came from America. And you lit them with coals. And they were supposed to be these little lanterns that kept the bad spirits away.
0: This is so proto-Halloween, Jen.
2: It's all proto-Halloween. Well... A lot of the Halloween that we know now came over to like places like America through the Irish emigration around the time of the potato famine. Samhain was also the time when people stopped and took stock and it kind of had a New Year's vibe. And I find it really fascinating that it's in the autumn. And that reminds me a lot of the Jewish New Year, which is Rosh Hashanah, which is also in the autumn. People were letting go of the light, and as I mentioned earlier, they brought their sheep and their cows down from the high summer pastures, which were kind of away from town, and now they needed to bring them close to home because they would get terrible weather and maybe snow, and they didn't want to be too far away anymore.
1: It's fascinating how many cultures had like, links to the solstices and equinoxes, you know? Like, I mean, and they, they had to, for sure, but, I mean, the Greeks had the same thing, right? It's, like, the number that just had to link things to how much light they had in a day and the various, yeah, the equinoxes and and the solstices that came with that.
0: Yeah, and they would kind of have to because these were agrarian societies just learning how to be agrarian from the beginning, so they'd have to keep real careful, like, track of the seasons and when they could plant things, right?
2: But the thing that's fascinating about Sawain and Beltane, which is the summer version of Sawain, is they don't happen on an equinox. They don't happen when the days are equal and they don't happen when the days are shortest or the longest. They happen directly in between. So this was meant to mark the point in which, okay, we're now getting closer to the dark coming in. We're welcoming the dark in. And it was meant to say like the, the equinox is over and we're going into the dark side. And the same with the Beltane, which was a summer fire festival and also a fertility festival. And I find it totally fascinating because they had these two festivals which were really big in their calendar that don't fall on an equinox or on a solstice. They're just in between to mark the time in between the equinox and the solstice.
1: That's really interesting.
2: Mm-hmm. So one of the things I found that was super fascinating about Sowing was that during Sowing, people in their villages would douse all their fires on that day. And in Greek room, any ancient culture, letting your fire burn out or in particular, dousing it, that is kind of terrifying because you don't know how you may be able to relight it. Like we're not talking about cultures where you've got sort of like more modern accoutrements that make it easier to light a fire.
0: Really interesting when you look at like um, ancient Greek and ancient Roman cults where they had like one central theme of that was like a fire that you were not supposed to let go out. The Vestal Virgins comes immediately to mind.
1: I mean, that connects to Greece in general, ancient Greece in general, like Hestia was the goddess of the hearth. She had almost no role in any myths. And yet she was one of the most important goddesses simply because she was in control of that fire that was in your house that never went out. And that was like vital. And Vesta had the same thing in Roman.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting because a fire, especially if you're in a climate where it was cold sometimes, like your fire is about cooking food and it's also about warmth. So it's about your survival. The
2: sense I got when I was doing the research was that you're never supposed to let the fire go out. No, because there's a giant pain in the ass when you let the fire go out. There's a wider reason, and I think it goes back to sort of what Liv was talking about, Hestia. In that your fire every year was supposed to be lit from the communal bonfire at Sawane And the idea, the symbolism of that was that as a community, you are all together. We have one fire, one life, and we are all being protected and taken care of as one. And... I found that so fascinating, and so I definitely wanted to include it in my story. It's just, it's so different from what I've seen, but also similar, because you do have the sacred Hestia's temple where the fire never burns out, and you can go there always and sort of get a light if you need one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you just go and you take a little twig or something to Hestia's temple. I don't know how it works, but that seems logical.
0: Right, there might be a time when you don't have a fire in your house and you have to get a light.
2: Yeah, there's so much about sewing that we really should do a mini sewed. But I wanted to talk about a couple of other little things. There's two big Roman influences that happened in sewing, and it's difficult because of how it's written to know if they influenced the actual ceremony, if they were added into the ceremony or what. And the first, there's a lot of games you play on Sowing with apples. And apples were sacred to the goddess Pomona. And they feature really strongly in the Sowing celebrations, which is not surprising because it's in October. You would have had a lot of apples harvested. You would have to do some stuff with those apples or they wouldn't last the winter. But there's sort of like a prototype of bobbing for apples where they used to tie apples on a string and on one side would be an apple and another side would be a candle and you'd be blindfolded and then they'd spin the apple and you'd try to bite the apple and not the candle i'm not sure how that worked i don't know how that worked
0: that's how what how ow this is a game that you get people to play who you don't like
2: Well, everyone is very drunk at this point in time.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And there
2: was another one where I think they threw apples at each other. And eventually this became how they bobbed for apples during our Halloween celebrations. It sort of all moved. And my husband was telling me, um, my husband's British, that when he was a kid, they used to tie apples and donuts on strings and blindfold you. And you try to take a bite of the apple or the donut. And that was like kind of like your blindfolded Halloween pin the tail on the donkey.
0: But there was no candle.
2: No candles. He was a child at the time.
1: Do Americans actually bob for apples? Have either of
0: you done that in your lives?
2: I've done it. I'm really good at it.
0: I have actually never done it that I can think of. Did we do it in college, Jen? I don't remember. Uh -uh. I feel like in the 90s it might have existed.
2: I've done it at a family Halloween party. It's really fun. And they had like the old tradition of putting coins in the apples. What if you bite
0: a coin? Doesn't that hurt your teeth?
2: That would really hurt your teeth. That sounds
0: terrible. Not quite as bad as setting you on fire during the apple game, but, you know, still not fun.
2: Another thing that sort of became conflated with Samhain is the Feralia, which was the Roman feast to celebrate the dead. It sort of moved to be celebrated around this time. We don't really know if that's the influence of the Gallic Celtic people and the Romans trying to sort of like roll all their customs into one or what. And Samhain was also the time that you got your future read, that if you were a king, you sort of instated new laws. Much like Yule, everyone was together. They were going into the dark season. Things were going to get tougher, so if you had new laws, now is the time to drop them. And you also planned marriages. Druids and seers would tell your future in the ashes of the Samhain bonfire. You would have, like, this special little circle you made, and you'd get some ashes in it, and then they'd be able to tell you what's going to happen next and you would also be given and this is my favorite thing it's the last thing I'm going to say about sewing because there's so much we you talk about it is the nuts test <laughs> I texted both of this to you because I just could not stop laughing about it so if you were sort of on the fence about a match that was going to be made for you during sewing, you would get two hazelnuts and you would put these two hazelnuts next to the fire. And if the nuts sort of roasted quietly together, you know, they were happy together. That was a good match. You don't have to be worried. If the nuts started slowly moving apart, then you knew this was not going to work out. Your nuts are just not compatible.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, babe. Our nuts are not compatible. We cannot... Incompatible nuts. That's right.
2: So there was also, again, because this was a time when you were sort of trying to decide about your future because you would closed out sort of the old year. You were going into the dark part of the year, probably a time when you're going to be indoors a lot. And if you were going to get married, maybe not a bad time to pick a husband, I guess. So they made this very dry cake that it could be made of anything, um, maybe oats. And essentially, you ate it in three bites. And then you were supposed to go to bed without any water. And then you'd have a dream of who who you're going to marry and I guess if you didn't dream of anyone you're not going to marry anyone and it was supposed to predict your future a lot of the stuff that was going on during Samhain was trying to predict your future and when we talked about Yule last year you see a lot of similar things like the nights are getting longer people are going to be like closer together for more time it was a great time to sort of talk about laws and marriages and family planning because everyone is going to be stuck inside and close together I mean god could you imagine how awful it would be to be like married at Yule or um Samhain and that that, like you're stuck with this guy during the darkest coldest time of the year and you're not hundred sure that you're down with this marriage.
0: I mean that's what the nuts are for Jen
2: I hope those nuts are right
0: <laughs> <Like> the, <laughs> the true scary story is if the nuts are wrong <laughs> <laughs> that's so true Maybe
2: that's my true scary story
0: <laughs> That's terrifying They also had a
2: cake that they baked that had like coins in it and a ring and like kind of like the mardi Gras cake that some people make
0: you just chip your teeth though. Am I wrong?
2: Wait a second. So you cut the cake into pieces. And then if your piece had like a coin or a, I mean, you didn't just shovel it into your mouth like like the Jenny Williamson
1: you are. (laughs) What? (laughs) I mean, Jenny, I would do that with cake too. Don't worry.
0: I would shovel that right in my face. I mean, that's cake.
1: (laughs) If your piece of cake had a coin
2: in it or it had a ring in it, then, you know, the coin meant you were going to get money in the year going forward and the ring meant you were going to get married.
0: These are all very dangerous baked goods. Don't eat
2: any of the ancient cakes.
0: don't eat the ancient cake. There's metal in it. So those are our scary
2: stories to tell in the dark.
0: I find us terrifying.
2: I find us terrifying for many reasons.
1: We are (laughs) terrifying, ladies. We are utterly terrifying. That was awesome. Which one do you guys think was the scariest? I don't know. I think it might have been Jenny's. Jenny's had the most violence.
2: Jenny's definitely had the most violence. Mine was definitely the saddest, I think.
1: I don't know. Liv's
0: had a lot of violence, too.
1: I know enough about, like, Sewane, too, where it's just, like, that one connects to me more because it's, like, so personally, I have a super hippie mother, and so she would always tell me about, like, whatever origins she knew of when it came to Halloween, I don't know how much accuracy was involved there, but it was a lot of like, well, you know, it wasn't all based on these costumes and the candy.
2: I would say she's wrong because the mumming, which I talked about where you go door to door to get like your sacrifices from different places, that's all where we get trick or treating from. So the mumming, which we, which I mentioned the brother did, he went door to door to sort of collect whatever was going to be ritually sacrificed. And then they bring that to one place where it's going to be sacrificed. Sometimes they had like I um, I don't know how much is more modern or not, but they also have like a white, they have like a white horse that they dressed as that was supposed to be like a spectral white horse that had a horse's skull on the top.
0: There's something like that with like a horse's skull in Wales too. Like, uh, oh gosh, what is it called? But as part of the mummer's dance, it's kind of terrifying.
2: Well, the mumming comes from here, essentially. The idea was you were supposed to go door to door and collect things. And then later on, you went door to door and you collected things and you also either played and impish trick on them people who didn't sort of give you things or you got things which you then took to be sacrificed
0: just hope there's not coins in the candy but if there is then
2: but if there is if there's a razor blade in your candy it goes back to ancient sewing that's right it's very much part
0: of the tradition this has been awesome
2: (laughs) we hope you have all enjoyed our scary stories and they see you through the spooky season
0: live thank you
2: for joining us Thank you so much, Liv. We loved hearing about the Kindly Ones and I will make sure I call them only the Kindly Ones.
1: But the Arenaways is such a better name. I'm only going to call them that. So do what they will. Liv, where can we find your podcast? Well, I'm Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And only because I've had a few drinks and will I actually sing that with other people around. You can find my podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts
0: anywhere you procure fine podcasts
1: (laughs) indeed i am there i assure you we'll put up a vote for you to vote on your favorite
2: scary story
0: thank you so much for listening and we will see you in two weeks